0: Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. Why do we still call it modernism? How many of you have asked yourselves that question? Perhaps we do so merely for lack of a better name. Modernist architecture is heavily associated with the creamy middle of the 20th century, a short 20th century between the end of World War I and before the Cold War thaw of Glasnost. Even though Art Nouveau and the Spanish modernista architectures rightfully declared themselves as new and modern, let the average person, or even the average architecture student, Look at Corbusier's Ville Savoie or the Dessau Bauhaus and then at modern works made somewhat earlier, such as Gaudi's Sagrada Familia or a Victor Horta interior. Images of these are on lapsuslima.com. Most people will point to the pictures with straight lines and a lot of white and say, that is modern architecture. So what accounts for this specific labeling? Despite the broadly self-attached label of modern that these movements carried, what we have come to know as such is a succession of period styles that took place roughly between the early 1920s and the late 1970s, joined by a common urge to novelty and a rejection of the past. Though these distinct venues of avant-garde development can be identified with some consistency in what art historian Alois Riegel called a Kunstwollen, or will to art, their trajectories do not rise and fall in a symmetrical arc, as would occur with single arrows in a vacuum. The exploration of recursive themes may require putting strict chronologies on hold, to zoom into the different parts of a historical timeline. As for historic context, one must wait until a movement has returned to Earth to truly see where things have landed. In 1964, when late modernism was already in a nosedive, but still moments away from impact, architecture critic Lewis Mumford wrote a review of Carl Jung's autobiography for The New Yorker. It was called The Revolt of the Demons, and the piece is remarkable not just for its insights into Freud and Jung, but as a closing corollary to the modernism we have just described, even though it doesn't say a word on architecture. Looking back on the high modern period, which we now know for its concurrent explorations of perception and time in painting and architecture, and its novel surveys of inner space through stream of consciousness and the development of depth psychology, Mumford notes how the disturbances in Jung's patience had revealed to him the matrix of a mythopoetic imagination that has vanished from our rational age. But a vanishing is not quite what was at work here. The revolt of the demons corresponds more clearly to a return, what Freud called the return of the repressed. And what is the repressed, if not that which is kept on a short but empowering leash by the very orders it would seem set to antagonize? Since the onset of the Enlightenment, Rationalism brought with it an equal and opposite reaction that began with the rosy-eyed but quickly darkening regressions of Romanticism, and would pave the way into the cynical new halfway world of the postmodern. Given this dialectic, it behooves us to presume the bastard lineage of the modern rationale must have been present in some shape or forms at the very time in which the Werkbund and the Bauhaus were setting the course for a new and improved architecture. And so it was. But though many of its more irregular manifestations, pataphysics, vorticism, even futurism, are treated as curiosities or placed at the margin of more typical histories of architecture, we consider them to be not quite as easily dismissible. If their input is less perceptible than that of more transparent leads, it may be owed to how their influence was simply so subversive. So it is in this spirit that we will spend some time on what may well have been the 20th century's first successful counterculture, Dada. To examine this sideline in art history, we will, of course, have to sidestep into it. In modernism's history, Bernard Smith proposes that the specific time and quality we designate as modernist should be known as the formalesque because of the emphasis it placed on form as separate from meaning he coins the term to refer to a quality spanning across several period styles from that of Cezanne in the late nineteenth century to the abstract expressionism of the nineteen sixties What all these styles had in common was their formalist imprimatur, where metaphor and historical reference were removed and attention was shined on the shape and the thing in itself rather than on what it meant or referred to. By using the word formalesque, Smith allowed formalism to retain its meaning in a manner similar to how the term Hellenistic is used to describe a Greek-dominated Mediterranean culture that was shaped by, but also distinct from, Hellenic influences. As it so happens, Dada holds some pride of place in Smith's analysis of the Formalesque, insofar as, It developed a radical critique of the formalesque itself, the generic style to which these avant-gardes all belonged. That is why it should be seen as the primal, though not exclusive, source of 20th century modernism. Perhaps the best way to describe Dada is as a guerrilla movement, formed in wartime to resist and combat the mechanistic pressures of progress. While it was not the only group of a similar persuasion at the time, it was perhaps the most far-reaching and prolific of them all, spreading from Zurich to Paris and from Berlin to New York. It was also the one that took the absurdity of its historic circumstances as a performative premise, bootstrapping terror into a kind of venture capital. Though, in the strictest sense, Dada lasted only from 1916 to 1924. It was relatively long-lived in its own way, and its legacy was carried on by a number of movements, the most outstanding and formal of which was surrealism. Though it rarely dwelled on architectural matters, Dada also stood for the inversion of some of the major themes that we have been discussing in our history of modern architecture. Where Sullivan had advanced the principle that form ever follows function, Dada's founder Tristan Tzara proclaimed, Dada is useless, like everything else in life. We already know that Matesius, and Van Velde argued that culture would be enlivened by incorporating art into quotidian life, and that Grofius intended to put housing at the service of this aim. A few years before the Berlin Arbeitsrat released its similarly angled statement of intent, though, Marcel Duchamp, who, though not a Dadaist himself, was most assuredly a friendly neighbor, was getting away with the opposite. Through the collection of found objects or their transformation into ready-mades, Duchamp plugged trite, even disfavored, aspects of life into the museum and the realm of high art. While the Werkbund and eventually the Bauhaus would advocate and practice deliberate planning for teakettles, housing projects, and conceptually precise visual art, Sara's instructions for making Dada poetry urged the aspiring author to cut up a newspaper article, shake the cutouts gently in a bag, and conscientiously transcribe the words in whatever order they were pulled out. Through their anarchic practices and various manifestos, the adherents of Dada pilloried what they considered to be a defunct art. In an attack on the German Philistine character, Raoul Hausmann referred to aesthetic abstractions and moral ethical farces, this pseudo-theosophic Germanic coffee-clatch. But now, these very abstractions and ethical imperatives which formed a charter component of the Bauhaus, were being assailed on two fronts, by industrial and economic reasoning, and by the anti-rationalist revolt stirred up by the younger proponents of Dada against the established expressionists. Grothius had himself secured professorships for a number of famous expressionists like Feininger, Itten. Kandinsky, and Clay. There were moments when the Bauhaus may have seemed more like a spin-off of the painter's group Der Blaue Reiter than like what it really was, its last asylum. It was in this context that Dutch artist Theo van Doosberg visited Weimar in 1922, wishing to teach at the Bauhaus. Though Gropius turned him down, Van Doosburg stayed in the city for a while, organizing an art congress with Russian cultural ambassador L. Lysitsky and Dadaist Kurt Schwitters. During and after his stay in Weimar, the Dutchman issued a series of pamphlets called Meccano, named after a children's magazine about erector-set toys, the third issue of which included a summary of the Weimar Congress of Constructivists and Dada. Lysitsky is quoted as applauding the Dadaists for cutting out the belly of the bourgeois brain, because, in so doing, they were excising what the mainstream had become accustomed and lazy in feeding the public. In Meccano's Combined Issue number 4 and 5, Zara writes, I think we are wrong to say that Dadaism, Cubism, Futurism are based on a common background. The last two trends were mainly based on a principle of technical or intellectual development, while Dadaism was never based on any theory and has been a protestation. This kind of technical and intellectual development, to which the Bauhaus was devoted, was precisely the target of Dada's protest. The art establishment was also inadvertently lending ammunition to these critics. As director of the Bauhaus's required preliminary course, johannes itten would take the mystical streak of expressionism to cult-like extremes insisting that his students follow a vegetarian diet and observe the practice of a neo-zoroastrian religion called mazda Nan. in an arc spanning from 1922 to 1925 that peaked in 1923 with Itten's expulsion. Expressionism was eradicated from the Bauhaus. Though the credit for this may not be due, or may be owed only in part to the influence of Dadaism, the Bauhaus's relinquishment of mystical art may be tallied as a final victory on Dada's upended scoreboard. Whatever the causes for the waning of Expressionism's star, its legitimacy and that of other pre-war movements was shaken, and Dada had been foremost in presenting a prognosis for this. As though nothing had changed after the war, and though everything had, Dada raged against how these established movements tried to keep much the same projects and aims that they had been engaged in prior to 1914. We have demonstrated one aspect of this continuity in how the Arbeitsrat and the Bauhaus manifestos, although strident and politically charged, at root worked to the same ends as the Werkbund had. A Dadaist observing this resumption of a pre-war program would see, once more, a recycling of meaningless tropes amplified by a bourgeois economy with applied art being fed to the masses as part of the latent engine of war. Repeating the same actions and expecting a different result was civilized insanity, against which the anarchy of Dada strived to make some space of refuge The Dadaists wanted to tear down all pretensions to elevated principles in a world where the best intentions had already paved a road to hell. In 1918, Tzara wrote, Let each man proclaim, There is a great negative work of destruction to be accomplished. We must sweep and clean." affirm the cleanliness of the individual after the state of madness. And so they did. The architect and Dadaist Johannes Bader was dismissed from the army in 1916 after writing a letter to the Kaiser's eldest son, making demands of the Kaiser, whom he refers to as the prince's grandfather. Matthew Bureau quotes the letter in The Dada Cyborg. My dear prince, I am currently a soldier in the army of your grandfather, who has become the monarch of the kingdom of violence. As I am the monarch in the kingdom of spirit, I cannot be put under the order of an inferior master. I ask you to please inform your grandfather of the following. I order him to stop every warlike undertaking and to start peaceful negotiations under my leadership. With fond greetings to your grandfather and you, Johannes Bader, pioneer. Almost as if alluding to Hamlet's nutshell-dwelling, king of infinite space, this self-styled regent of the spirit was rejecting the corruption of the world in an effort to salvage what was left of it. While not exactly a conventional complaint, today this letter strikes us more as a sincere protest than as the ravings of a dangerously sick man. Badr was, however, declared permanently unfit for service by reason of insanity and hospitalized several times thereafter. Fellow Berlin Dadaist Raoul Hausmann even claimed that Bader would induce the authorities to institutionalize him when he needed to escape his creditors, lending the purpose of asylum with its full investiture. For many artists, the trauma of war had emblazoned abandon all hope, ye who enter above the blasted gates of western culture returning to mumford's perspective on this period raises the question are the demons truly in revolt when they have come to serve their native purpose join us next week on lapsus lima as we examine the explosive history of dada from inception to diffusion From Zurich to Paris with tough love. Thank you for listening.